Hey, friends, welcome to Stand to Reason, and uh, I'm glad to uh, in- welcome you to our conversation here. Greg Kokel, your host. And uh, I, um, let's see, where do I want to start here? Oh, um, I, last weekend, as I was giving a presentation um, at a fairly large church here in Southern California, I actually was doing a conference on Saturday, and there was a young lady that came up to me, and she said, um, I'm new to apologetics. Um, uh, I'm a little bit shy, and it's sometimes hard for me to engage other people. She took a master's degree at a secular college and got pretty challenged there in that environment, and uh, she was thrilled to sit through the sessions on Saturday where I was offering thoughts on a number of different things in defense of Christianity. And so she asked me, um, do you know where I can find other people who care about this kind of stuff? Uh, She was looking for kindred spirits, uh, Christians who were interested in apologetics. She wanted some books. I recommended a few. She actually has an undergraduate degree in, in philosophy, I think, or maybe she minored in philosophy, but she had... She had some background, and so I recommended uh, my first recommendation if somebody wants to read something that is philosophically oriented but is very accessible, and that's Greg Gansel's book, Thinking About God. I think we sell that here at Stand to Reason. Is that right? Yeah, thumbs up there from Kyle, Thinking About God, Greg Gansel, G-A-N-S-S-L-E. Um, a little, a, a little um, insight, by the way, or a little behind-the-scenes information. I like Greg Gansel's style so much. It was so accessible that when I first wrote Tactics like 15 years ago, before I would sit down to write, I would read Greg's work to kind of get a pace, uh, get a feel for his voice, which was very conversational and very accessible. And I wanted to build that voice and accessibility and conversational notion into the tactics book, which I did, and he was one of the first people that reviewed the book for the philosophical journal, journal Philosophia Christi, gave it high marks, and and uh, and I told Greg, I said, well, you know, I, I he actually was influenced uh, to some degree by your book, the uh, uh, think the book Thinking About God, and uh, it's a great book to give you a foundation in the basic things that that are. Uh, elements of philosophy of religion, God's existence and problem of evil and things like that. So that was my first recommendation. Then I said, if you want to go a little bit more complex, uh, you can go to Bill Craig. And uh, that's the next step up. And Reasonable Faith, I think, is fantastic. I was just reading it myself again uh, recently because it's such an excellent work. I think the third edition is uh, the current one. And uh, but that's much more philosophical, and there's a much larger tome J.P. Moreland and Bill Craig did together, William Lane Craig, called the Philosophical Foundations for the Christian Worldview. Anyway, she's writing the titles down, and um, but she but as to her question, where where can I hang out with others of kindred spirit? Um, I told her I said I, I wish I could tell you, and actually there's some things like that by other organizations, which I recommended to her, like Reasonable Faith or Reasons to Believe, RTB, Hugh Ross, and that crowd. But I, uh, I mean, all great groups. 
But I said, we are actually developing a strategy ourselves to have what amounts to standaries and clubs that we call outposts um, in different places around the country. But we haven't we haven't uh, launched it yet, but we're in the process. In fact, we've had 65 applications from about 25 states, just about half, and like seven or eight different countries. And what outposts are, are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about classical Christianity and um, and being exposed to the particular ways that Stand to Reason characterizes these answers to the challenges, and the whole notion of building ambassadors with knowledge and wisdom and character, and each outpost is led by a qualified director who's got to jump through some hoops for us, uh, who will provide SDR content on a Christian apologetics and lead discussions and defending the faith. Uh, you, want, you can work other content in if you want, so it's not a problem. But uh, we're really building communities of standard reason in local uh, climes with especially attached to local churches. And so we can contribute to the life of the local church in a way that doesn't burden the staff with more responsibilities. So these are called outposts. If you want more information about that, and or if you'd like to sign up to be an outpost instructor or outpost director, I guess is what we call them, you can go to str.org forward slash outpost. Now, if it's a forward slash outpost, that means there must be some kind of drop-down menu or whatever on the front, on that page, str.org, and then you, you, there should be a link. Amy, do you know that? Is there a link to the outpost? Like, is it easy to see right on the web page? It's under the, tr- thank you, under the training category. But if you want to type it in directly, str.org slash outposts, and all the information is there. You can uh, learn more about it, and you can apply there. And uh, our goal is to launch 100 new groups this fall. And we'll be uh, announcing those details, of course, as time goes on. But uh, I think there's a, there's a process of, applying, and we've just recently opened up application. People have to apply, then they have to have testimony, letters of recommendation, and there's. we want to make sure that our directors are solid people that can direct you, if you're a member of the Outpost, well. Okay, so we have three now that are already locked down and accepted and ready to rock and roll. And as time goes on, we'll be we'll be having more there, and then we will be letting you know. And I think we have a, a web page where you'll be able to go to see where the locations are, who's involved, who to connect with. So I, I felt badly that I couldn't tell this sweet young lady um, that there was an outpost right there in her community or within striking distance that she could connect with. But we're working on it. I just want to let you know. And no matter where you are in the world. If you would like to be a director of an enterprise like this, you can have your own group locally and ideally associated with a local church. But if 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 it does, that's not an absolute requirement. So, uh, as I recall, <laughs> but we're trying to build these in local churches uh, for I think for obvious reasons. Just go to str.org forward slash outposts 
and you can uh, you'll get more information there. Robbie Lashua is our staff person who is uh, pursuing this, uh, and Robbie's just new this year to Stand to Reason. He's doing an absolutely smash up job. It's just sensational. Um, he's one of our speakers, one of our content producers, but uh, also really working hard to organize this uh, this whole strategy. Uh, and and we're really thrilled to see how it's um, how it's developing. So that's going to be uh, available to you. Um, I have um, just received a letter. Uh, it was here for me when I got in, and. Uh, this is a uh, a letter talking about Pride Month, and and it's 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 very nicely written, and uh, I won't use the name of the person because I haven't asked him if I could do this, but I think it'd be okay. So I'll just keep him anonymous for now. But uh, uh, the observations here are, are really important. Uh, let me before I read it though. I want to say something about propaganda. I guess is is waiting to find the right word there, but propaganda is the right word. Whether it's propaganda through film, Hollywood, uh, or any other medium like that, propaganda through online social media, propaganda through uh, advertisements, uh, it is very easy to make something ugly look good hollywood does it all the time i mean just think for example this is on another issue but um have you noticed now that it's very difficult to see any any film especially action film where not only is there a woman in prominence it's not just that she's in prominence she's one of the action figures individuals characters but uh, i think more often than not she's leading the pack she's the head combatant and she's always gorgeous and she weighs about 120 pounds <laughs> but she's able to throw these football players over her shoulders and and punch them silly okay um now this isn't reality the, the, the think about women's sports right now the hue and cry in women's sports because men uh, i'm trying to think of the best way to put this I'll, I'll just put it kind of neutrally men competing as women um are you know are breaking records everywhere and 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 uh Again, I'm looking for metaphors that I can use on the air, like that don't sound crude, but they're just kicking butt. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Why? Because guys are bigger and stronger and more capable physically than women on balance. That's why you get a, a second or third rate guy swimmer who can beat every other female swimmer in the NCAA or wherever that guy was swimming. It's because men are physically different. The women, which is the whole point of Title IX. Title IX is meant to provide a safe place for women competition, female competition, women competing against women, peer competition, as in P-E-E-R. 
And I, I amazingly, I saw, uh, I was waiting, it was probably a Tuesday night, like today, I head home and I stop at the local pizza place. It's a small, private, small business. Mr. Sam runs it. He knows, when I call, he knows who it is right away. I'm going to pick up a pizza on my way home. There I am waiting for my pizza, and on the on the screen there, you know, they usually have soccer games or whatever. They had a big thing about Title IX, and Title IX is rolling by this, this uh, I should say, this video is celebrating Title IX. And so here's women. They're finally competing against themselves. They're doing these great things, and it's, you see these images going through time, and all of a sudden now you have trans athletes. And this is part of the celebration of Title IX. Just think it. Now we have these wonderful trans athletes. Look at where Title IX has taken us. Well, what is a trans athlete? It's a guy competing against a gal, which was the problem that was solved by Title IX to begin with. So the whole point here is that you've got men that have certain capabilities, and uh, they are <laughs> physically, on balance, by nature, superior to women. No duh. Which is why you have Title IX sports originally. Nevertheless, what Hollywood can do is it could it can do anything. I remember when I was a kid watching a cartoon, and there was a cat that was chasing a bird. And the bird went up in the tree, and they can't get up. I mean, this I'm just kind of my recollection. You get the general idea. The cat, I mean, cats can climb trees, but the way, or maybe it was a dog. I don't know. Whatever it was, the the creature had taken refuge up in the tree. And the per, the <laughs> the con, pursuing carnivore couldn't get at it. And then it does a stage glance. You know what that is? It's when the character looks at the audience. And and the dog or whatever said, hey, this is Hollywood. I can do whatever I want. And then he just kind of walks up an invisible stairway to the limb and gets the bird or chases the bird out. And then the, the pursuit continues. But the point is, he's right. In Hollywood, you could do anything. You could take things that are impossible, make them look possible. And you could take things that are ugly and make them look beautiful. And this is what's happened with homosexuality in Hollywood and with Christianity. So homosexuality is morally ugly and destructive to people, and Hollywood makes it look beautiful. And Christianity is, at least in principle— the way it ought to be practiced, not, it's not always done that way, I understand it, is morally virtuous and an expression of the beautiful plan that God has for mercy and forgiveness for sinners and a, a, a um, restoration of wholeness in one's life through sanctification. But what Hollywood does is it makes it look ugly. It makes it look ugly. And it's easy to do with film. Or any of the other mediums that I mentioned. Okay, propaganda. So all that is a predicate to this, to reading this letter that was sent to me. I just picked it up today, dated July 15th, so I don't know, today's the 26th, though. But I just got it. And it's a, a, it's a reflection along these lines. 
So uh, it's largely self-explanatory, so I'm just going to read it to you because it makes the point with details and facts and figures and statistics that I was just making. How something that is made to look good is not as good as it's made to look. It's actually tragic. Dear Mr. Kokel, sorry for not being able to write while Pride Month was current. That would have been June. When Pride and related issues come up in discussions, it's been an opportunity to share the truth. That's what he's offering here, and he's going to get into the truth. But it just occurred to me, I saw something yesterday somewhere, maybe on my phone or news blurb or something came up, just an announcement or whatever. Did you know that this is also a Pride Month? June is a Pride Month, but July is a Pride Month too. You'll never guess what July Pride is. It's Disability Pride Month. Disability Pride Month. Excuse me? (laughs) That's goofy. Now, I think we should have awareness. That's good, because sometimes we're not as aware as we ought to be. But this is Disability Pride. Really? I'm a quadriplegic, and I'm proud of it. I'm not trying to disparage quadriplegics. I'm trying to disparage the stupidity of this kind of celebration in a month. Pride? Okay. Anyway, so uh, he says Pride Week is an opportunity to share the truth. So first truth is, he continues, God doesn't prohibit things arbitrarily. By the way, this is a fabulous point that reaches far beyond this issue of homosexuality or any sexual sin. God doesn't prohibit things arbitrarily. He prohibits only things that harm the individual or harm others. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Likewise, do not engage in sex outside of marriage. All are harmful. As any loving parent, God wants to keep his children from harm. That's fabulous. That's just absolutely fabulous. I mean, I could probably opine longer on it, but he said it perfectly with a lot of short sentences, full stops, makes his point, and on he goes. Great. God wants to keep his children from harm. He does not prohibit things arbitrarily. Second truth is the data from a very large number of reputable, readily available medical and social science sources both domestic and foreign, provide overwhelming evidence of the harm done by those practicing the pride lifestyle. He means gay pride here. The data clearly show the harm is both physical and mental. Now, you're not going to hear about this, friends, in Legacy Press, but this is true. It's all over there. Um... I'm trying to think of the name of the author who had been from West One College, who uh, wrote a book about this. And it was a very warm and sensitive book, but it was about the dangers of homosexuality and the statistics and the kinds of things that this writer, this letter writer is referring to in a general sense. And it, I mean, it's helpful. You want to be informed about this? Let's have the truth about it. You can call this bigotry or hatred. I, it's not. It's factual. What was that guy's name? Uh, the The title that comes to my name is like straight down a crooked path. But I, but I, I think that's the title of a talk that I gave. And what I was doing was it was a 
it was a variation of the title of his book. But anyway, maybe you'll come up with it. Um, oh, but he goes through all of these details. Okay, she's working on it. And then anyway, regarding the data, the data clearly show the harm is both physical and mental. Compared to the heterosexual community, the pride community suffers disproportionately higher rates of STDs, eating disorders, mood disorders, violence towards each other, substance abuse, and suicide. A few examples from the CDC data. Notice the source, CDC, on homosexuality that I've shared. By the way, I think the CDC is a good source of data, of statistical information. I don't, I've lost confidence in the CDC in terms of their advice, but that's another issue. This is data that they collect. Though gay and bisexual men are only about 3% of the population. And now he's quoting, I guess, from the CDC data. Quote, in 2019, adult and adolescent gay and bisexual men accounted for 69% of the new HIV diagnoses in the United States. Close quote. Next one. Actually, a Save the quotes. All of these that I'm citing are quoted, quotations from CDC. Bisexual and other men who have sex with men accounted for 83% of primary and secondary syphilis cases. Gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men are 17 times more likely to get anal cancer than heterosexual men. Research also shows that compared to other men, gay and bisexual men have higher chances of having major depression, bipolar disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder. And the last one here, also a citation, National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, that would be the NISVS, has found that homosexuals disproportionately suffer violence and inflict violence on one another. I remember many years ago when I was working at uh, KBRT, my own flagship station when I in the 90s when I started radio, I got a call from a, a, a Christian man who had been in the homosexual lifestyle for a long time in Hollywood. And and he told our listeners how ugly that lifestyle was on the inside and the kind of abuse that existed there. Now, I'm not making this up. This is what he was saying. But it's that testimony first person was consistent with these kind of statistics. And his letter continues, the data on lesbians and transgenders is somewhat different, but equally compelling in showing their lifestyle to be harmful. There's a reason that the data on lesbians and the data on gay men is going to be different, you know, and here's why, because men are different than women. That's why it's different. Um, Women domesticate men's sexuality. When a man marries a woman, he makes a promise to stick with that one woman um, because sticking with that one woman protects that one woman. She's the one who has babies. She needs a man for a lifetime to help her take care of the babies he produces with her. But if it were just up to men without the promise, a whole lot of them would have a lot more partners than they, they would if they had not decided to restrict their behavior, okay? So marriage... Women, wives, domesticates 
and in a sense controls appropriately controls men's sexual behavior um, and they're they're much more voracious appetite but this is another thing that Hollywood gets wrong because they make it look like women are just as hungry sexually as men this is not true <laughs> guys know this but um, <clears throat> Men, when they are not restrained by women, but this, they have only sex with men, there's, there is no restraint. And this is why the idea of monogamous gay relationships is, is uh, well, I said the, the reality of them is, is uh, so rare. Okay? Uh, so that's why when it comes to lesbians, you're going to get uh, a different pattern. And you're also, since their sex is not invasive like male sex is, uh, there's not going to be the same kind of physical, physiological problems here. But uh, in any event, there are other things that are going on with lesbians and transgenders. The rate of transgender suicide is, is really high compared to non-transgender types. Um, and that is because once they make the transition, they don't really feel much better about themselves. Something's still wrong. And, of course, what the community wants to tell you is their community is it's our fault. They're committing suicide because of Christians who say their life is wrong. Look at the whole culture right now is bent towards telling trans people that they're just fine, and the people who are not who who are complaining about or objecting are wrong. That would be Christians. So the real pressure is not against trans people; it's against Christians in the culture. But Christians are killing themselves because everybody's telling them they're bad. In fact, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that. Not that it wouldn't happen, but I've never heard that allegedly a person who is a follower of Christ killed himself because of social oppression. But that's the claim that's being made against Christians regarding trans people, and that's why the statistics are what they are. That's just obviously false. I continue. This data has been uniformly eye-opening to everyone I've shared it with. Although readily available... All were completely unaware of it. They had been misled by the widespread media coverage that portrays the, or portrays the pride community as victims of unfounded, hateful, archaic bias and intolerance. And that's part of the propaganda. That's the point. The only retort I've ever gotten was, what could be wrong with two people of the same sex having a loving relationship? By the way, that's more propaganda. What could be wrong with two people of the same sex having a loving relationship? To which this writer responds, nothing. Nothing's wrong with two people of the same sex having a loving relationship. As long as it doesn't involve sexual activity. You you see the shell game right here, friends, right? They take the sexual behavior and they just subsume that all under a loving relationship. But of course, the, that is not what the gay lifestyle entails. All these loving relationships they're having, how do they love people they don't even know? I mean, the level of anonymous sex is pretty amazing. Incidentally, by the way, in terms of dangers, I just got, do I have my cell phone here? 
do. Um, I just got uh, a text that had the latest information uh, from the um, New England Journal of Medicine survey that was done recently. New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, it's, let me just look here and see that. Okay, monkeypox virus infection in humans. According to the New England Journal of Medicine, their paper uh, on monkeypox cases in 16 nations uh, indicates that sex between men is what's driving the outbreak. 98% were gay or bi men. 75% were white. 41% had HIV. No women. 95% of cases thought to have transmitted been t- transmitted during sex. So here we got another. This the next big thing, right? Monkeypox. Look out! Here it comes. It's everywhere. It's everyone. No, it's not. It's gay men or bisexual men. It's not even women. This is New England Journal of Medicine, NEJM, their recent study. They're looking at 528 uh, monkeypox cases in 16 nations. Just thought I'd toss that statistic in there. So uh, let's see. Uh, What can be wrong? We mentioned that. Nothing as long as they don't have sexual activity. Don't equate love with sexual activity, is what he writes. We all have people of the same sex in our lives that we love dearly with no thought of sexual activity. When two people of the same sex engage in sexual activity, each partner knowingly risks harm to themselves and to their partner. Each is exploring the other for sexual gratification. That's not a loving relationship. To love someone is to be truly concerned for their well-being. Third truth, genuine compassion for people, including those in the pride community, is to always do whatever we can to keep them from harm. Uh, this is what Jesus meant, by the way, uh, something along this line when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. I think C.S. Lewis's treatment of that statement is among the best. He says, how do we love ourselves? Well, it doesn't mean we always feel good about ourselves, but we do seek our own best self-interest. We we try to find do what's good for us. So what what uh, Jesus is saying is love other people that way. Uh, Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, the beginning, don't just look out for your own needs, but look out for the needs of others. Consider those needs as more important than your own. That's what Jesus did. Then he goes on to talk about the incarnation, the kenosis, and Jesus humbling himself, etc. So if we are really loving our and having compassion for people in the pride community, we, we want to do whatever we can to keep them from harm. So this writer continues, we should not be accepting normalization of the pride lifestyle in the culture. Not only is it harmful in the present, but becomes a snare to others in the future. It is clearly, he's closing now, it's clearly not a benign alternative lifestyle, often presented as innate. It's not innate. Now, he writes here it's a choice, and I don't think that's actually accurate. Certainly the behavior is a choice, but the 
same-sex attraction isn't a choice, all right? Um, but it's not innate. He's correct about that. He'll say more about that in a moment, but the in this last paragraph, but uh, the, the action's a choice, choice. The same-sex attraction seems to be developmental. Like a lot of things about our sexual tastes are things that we develop, all right? Our circumstances and our experiences influence that. He goes on to say, um, the reasons some make that choice may not be well understood, but it is nonetheless a choice. And many, many studies of identical twins show one of them to be heterosexual and the other homosexual. Uh, incidentally, in Tactics, the 10th anniversary edition, I have a lot of information about that, about those, uh, uh, about those studies. I personally, he finishes here, know of identical twins which, where that's true, and I personally met former gays and lesbians that in Christ become heterosexual and have married. Uh, change is possible. Paul confirms it. Such were some of you. He's quoting here 1 Corinthians 6, uh, referring to Paul's condemnation of all kinds of sexual sin, and then says, but many of you were that, but you're not that way now. Now, uh, just a point of clarification, I can't speak for this writer, I'm not entirely sure what he means here, but uh, I am not. I am not campaigning that people who have same-sex attraction, if they just turn to Christ, all those desires are going to go away, and they're going to have a heterosexual att- attraction. As I think it's Christopher Yuan makes the point, what what God is looking for in homosexuals, people with same-sex attraction, is not to become heterosexuals, but rather to become holy. That's the issue. We all have compulsions that are unseemly uh, and sinful and ought not be the way they are. Nevertheless, they are there, and we have to deal with them, right? All of us have things like that. Heterosexual or same-sex or non-unrelated to sex, we all have that. The question is not how do we get rid of those things, though sometimes that's the case. These compulsions go away. We maybe discipline our lives and our thinking in some way that we don't struggle with that. People who have, who have tempers can address the vice in their life and become more virtuous, even people who are not Christian. But, of course, as followers of Christ, we have the additional help of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. But that doesn't, doesn't mean everybody's going to have, have that. You can have people that still struggle with anger, but are willing to manage it and capable of managing it so that they live virtuously in the midst of their impulse to do evil. And this applies to sexuality, too. There is no promise when a person with same-sex attraction becomes a Christian that somehow all of that struggle is going to go away. For some, it does quickly. For some, it does over time, and for some, it never does. We can't control directly those kinds of things. What we can do is live a holy life. Heterosexuals have the same kind of struggle in their life. Even though we know what's right, we, have, we are drawn to sinful expressions of our heterosexuality. And that's when we 
as heterosexual people have to say no to those things, no to the thought, no to the behavior. We don't feed that fire. We starve it and seek to live virtuously, even though we are fallen and our, if you will, natural tendency uh, compels, drives us, uh, tempts us to do what's wrong. We can still say no. That's what it means to not be slaves to sin. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Change is possible, as this person closes. Change doesn't mean you're going to change your desires, but your behavior to be holy is certainly possible. That's one thing that the Lord can give you. All right, uh, let's take a break, and we'll come back with more on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. In our final segment here on Stand a Reason for this show, I'm going to go to some of our recorded calls, and uh, you guys know how this works. If you are interested in asking a question, but you are not able to w- call uh, when the show is live, which is 4 to 6 p.m. on Tuesdays, L.A. time, uh, or if you, <laughs> you're not really able to wait on hold, and sometimes that's what happens. This particular show hasn't been like that, <clears throat> but a lot of times we have four or five callers in the queue, and uh, it's just a takes a while to get you call in the beginning of the first show and you end up towards getting on the air towards the end of the second show. Uh, so what we've done uh, is we've made a provision. If you go to str.org, uh, let me think, I'm looking for the str.org. Do we have a question? I guess just go to the str.org and go to the podcast page. 
the live broadcast page. There we go. Amy just gave it to me. And uh, there you will see a, a, a feature there that explains how you can take advantage of doing the recorded calls. And um, you punch the button and you start talking. And then Amy keeps track of that. I get a list here. And so I just call for the caller and, and the caller asks this question and I can respond to it. And it's really actually helpful for me in times when we have um, fewer calls and I can do a full show with real questions. Or uh, it's also good for you guys who aren't able to get in and wait in line and all that other stuff. So go to str.org, our, broad, our live broadcast page, and uh, and then you'll see the provision there for doing your recorded calls. So um, let's see what I got here. Um, how about uh, Doug Smith? All right. Uh, this is a question about end times, my absolutely favorite topic. <laughs> this is going to be a short answer probably. Okay. Doug Smith. Doug? Hi, Greg. Hi, Doug. This is a, an eschatology question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've helped me understand the post-trib rapture stance, which I now believe is really quite clear in Scripture. Now I'm trying to understand what happens next. Could you help me in your view? Uh, is this the beginning of the new millennial reign on earth? Uh, when is the sheep and goats judgment? Mm-hmm. When is the new heavens and the new earth? Is there going to be a 1,200-mile cubed new Jerusalem city? When is that? Thank you, and I appreciate your ministry. Oh, thanks. I uh, appreciate that, Doug. Um, let me say something about the rapture. Um I was schooled uh, very directly under Hal Lindsey. I just actually looked him up online yesterday, and he's 92 years old. He's still alive. And I think he's still doing things, teaching and stuff, the Lindsey prophecy something or other. Um, And uh, this guy is a very good Bible teacher, frankly. And I learned about the grace of God from him. And the work of the cross was one of the most powerful classes I ever took from him. I was part of a Christian community where he was, uh, he was one of the founders of that. It was called the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse. It's in Westwood Village, right off the UCLA campus in a big former fraternity house. But in any, any event, so I was schooled um, in the pre-trib approach and just kind of accepted it because that's what I was exposed to. But after time, when, as time went on, I began to question whether it was sound biblically. And I have since uh, now... Um, rejected that notion for a number of reasons, which I won't really get into, um, except for to say the passages that both talk about um, that are that are in a certain sense proof texts for the pre-trib rapture. That would be First Thess chapter four and First Corinthians fifteen. Uh, both of those actually they don't call it a rapture. That's actually from a Latin word to be caught up. And um, they also tell when it's going to happen. Uh, in both of those passages, First Thess 4 and First Corinthians 15, they call it the resurrection, and they identify this resurrection as happening when Christ returns. So my question is, how many times does the Messiah visit the earth? Uh, classically, we've understood it to be true. Two, the first time as the Lamb of God, the second time as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. On the rapture, pre-trib rapture take, Jesus is actually returning three times. 
I'm sorry, he's visiting the planet three times. The first time, the second time to take the church away seven years before his visible return at the end after the tribulation. Um, so there's just one of the things that came, became, uh, how, how can I put it, that, that was persuasive to me. There's a, quite a number of other things, but persuasive to me that not not to understand the rapture in that way or the resurrection, but just the resurrection happens when Jesus returns, and his return is visible and powerful and conclusive. And and then I, I get those three words from the particulars, the details of Matthew uh, 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, or at least Matthew's version of it. It's also in Luke 21 and Mark 11, I believe. So anyway, so then the question becomes, okay, what does happen? Now I have, uh, I mean, apart from me denying that, pre-trib rapture, rather after the tribulation, then there's going to be a resurrection. So um, uh, let's see, Doug mentioned post-trib rapture. I don't even like the terminology myself because I don't like the word rapture. The resurrection happens at the end of the age. The tribulation, whatever that is, how long it is, what it looks like, that happens before the end of the age. So the resurrection, rapture if you will, happens after or post the tribulation. So what what's next? When is the sheep and the goats? Uh, when is that? When does that happen? Is, is heaven a cube? Uh, and uh, I will tell you what I what I'm strongly convinced of, but there are very few things that I am going to hold fair, very firmly with regards to end times eschatology. I am strongly convinced that the pre-trib rapture is not biblically is not biblical teaching, and when I say that. And, and frankly, I don't care one way or another. God, Jesus can do whatever he wants, but I, I'll tell you what I do care about is the preparedness of Christians for persecution and suffering and hardship. Because when I say that with groups of people, and I don't campaign on this, but sometimes it comes up during a Q&A, when I say that with groups of people who seem to have an, indi- an inclination to, to respect my point of view, I see fear on their face. I see fear on their face like, Oh, maybe he's right, and that means I'll have to go through the—I'm not ready for that. I thought I was going to get rescued from that. That's the problem. You look at history for the last 2,000 years, there hasn't been a rapture, but there have been a whole lot of Christians that have suffered terribly at the hands of human beings because they're Christians. So regardless of whether we escape the tribulation, the Great Tribulation— we still ought to be preparing for tribulation and persecution, because there's plenty of that to go around. Not so much in the United States until more recently, and now there's more, and we feel it because it's so unusual, but we feel nothing like most Christians have for the last 2,000 years. And I mean real followers of Christ, not just Christendom. And, uh, and 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 even now in many other countries where Christians are being severely persecuted. 
All right. So whether or not there's a pre-trib rapture, you better be prepared for the kind of suffering and hardship and even martyrdom that we see of believers in the book of Revelation after the period when the rapture is supposed to take place. Now, I know the rapture crowd thinks, well, those are the poor sods who weren't lucky enough to believe in Jesus before the rapture, and they got to go through the tribulation. Well, I don't think that's sound thinking, but nevertheless, there are believers in the tribulation that suffer, and there are going to be believers before the tribulation that suffer, so be prepared to suffer. Okay? So that's my thing. One thing I, I'm really confident on, no pre-trib rapture. The second thing I'm really confident on is that there is a, a difference between the, the, the church, God's plan for the church, which includes Jewish Christians, if you will. Some thinks it's a, a contradiction of terms. No, it's not, because the Jewish part is the ethnicity. They are Jewish people who believe in Christianity. A lot of Jews are just atheists, but they're no less Jewish. They're still Jews. And so there are many Jews that understand that Jesus is the Messiah, so they are Jewish people who are Christians. Not a contradiction. Uh, there, 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 there are uh, promises that are made, even, even though the church is made up of Jewish people, and Gentile believers, and we are all one in Christ. There are particular promises that are very obviously made to the to Israel, and seem to be to be unilateral and unconditional. Certainly, there is punishment for Jews who are wayward, and the nation of Israel, in particular, I'm talking about here. Um, but I, I think that given the promises that are clear throughout Scripture regarding the nation of Israel, that there is no way that somehow the church replaces Israel. And I know there's language in the New Testament that a Jew is not one who is Jewish outwardly, but inwardly in the circumcision of the flesh. I think that has to do with a specialized circumstance of the New Covenant. But uh, I would just want to read this for example, one passage from Jeremiah, chapter 31, and uh, starting in 31, I'm not going to read the whole passage here, but 31, 31 is the beginning of the passage talking about the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, notice this is a covenant with Israel and Judah, the divided nations, the divided nation of, 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 you know, God's people divided into two because of the Civil War, the covenant with them, it's going to be a new covenant for them. Now, we get grafted in. Cool. But but the focus here is Israel, and then, and, and then Israel and Judah, and the Jews. And then he describes some details, but then he says this, verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for lights by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 36, if this fixed order departs, which fixed order? The fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, 
and the sun for light by day, verse before. If that fixed order departs, in other words, if the sun is no longer shining, and the moon is no longer there, and the stars are no longer there, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, this is hyperbole in a certain sense. It's, if A, then B, not A, therefore not B. What is that? Modus tollens, right? If the moon and sun and stars cease functioning the way I made them to function, then you can count on me ceasing to be, or the nation of Israel ceasing to be a nation before me. But, as long as the moon and stars are there, you know that they're still a nation. Well, last I looked, they're all still up there in the sky, which means that they're still a nation before God. How was this to be understood? This is Jeremiah. This is during the deportation, right? And things are looking bad. But Jeremiah is saying there is hope for Israel, national Israel. So even though the church is made up of Jews, and in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, there are still promises made to national Israel that uh, obtain towards national Israel. There is a difference between Israel and the church in that sense. I cannot abandon that. That would make me dispensational in some sense. There are different ways to cash that out. But that's the big difference. It isn't just you got Israel and now you got the church and to hell with Israel kind of thing, quite literally. No, God's made these promises. And uh, and this one is crystal clear. Jeremiah 31 and 31 and following. So that's, that's the second thing. Israel's got a role. National Israel's got a role in this. And um, and then the other thing that I'm really solid on, confident on, is that there is going to be a new heavens and new earth, and our eternal abode will be on this earth. When we get our resurrection bodies, then we are placed on the new earth. It's a refreshed, refurbished earth. New heavens and a new earth. The heavens there is this, is the the atmospheres, and then the the ground. <laughs> okay, that's physical reality. Heavens, you know, and the earth. Those are a way of characterizing all of physical reality. It's going to be all redone and cleaned up and straightened out, and there's going to be our abode. We are made for physical existence. When we are absent from the body and present with the Lord, we are in an unnatural state of affairs. We are torn from our body in death. And Paul says, we want to be clothed. We, We want to have our souls clothed. We are made to be embodied souls. And so when we get our resurrection bodies, which are a type of physical body, we will be reunified with a physical body that has special qualities and dimensions to it, which is hard to figure that out. We'll know then. <clears throat> Paul seems to talk about the mystery of that in First Corinthians 15. But that will come in the future, and I can't tell you what that's all going to be like. But I do know we're meant to be ensouled physical bodies, and the place where ensouled physical bodies will abide— 
is going to be on earth. We are not going to be like souls locked into an eternal gaze upon the glory of God in the, um, what did, how was that characterized, the uh, beatific vision. That's not my view. I heard John MacArthur say that recently, and I was stunned to hear that. We're just going to be locked into a perfectly blissful moment for eternity, gazing at God. What did he make the new heavens and the new earth for? It's for us to be there to do all kinds of things, including ruling angels, and there's going to be meaningful activity and meaningful work and all kinds of very cool stuff. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forever, the psalmist says. So I think those are the things, three things that I'm pretty confident about. Also, I mean, we win in the end. A lot of people die, and we win in the end. That's another thing that's pretty clear to me from the book of Revelation. But frankly, a lot of other things are up in the air, and uh, I think it's a challenging book, so it's hard for me to be dogmatic about much more than what I just described, and I gave you the reasons why I feel strongly committed to those things. So I appreciate uh, that question, Doug. I hope it meets your need. That's it for this show, friends. Great Cole for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, okay? Bye-bye now. <laughs> 